Matthew 5, verse 33. If you are able, if you're physically able, I ask you to stand as we read from Scripture. Matthew 5, and we will end, we'll read, Lord willing, to the end of this chapter. Matthew 5, verse 33. Again, you have heard, you've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps to you, slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your enemy, you love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Please be seated. Vows, vengeance, and violence. Lord willing, today we're going to seek to cover all of this. Now recently we have divided up sections slowly. Today we're going to try to cover more. I want you to understand, it's not because each of these sections is not worthy of attention on its own. Several years ago I was listening to Tom Holly in a Bible camp teach on Luke 13. As he was preaching at the end of Luke 13, I was listening to this. I thought, I could make a sermon on Luke 13, 34. And it dawned on me that day that if I could live as long as Methuselah, I could write a sermon on every verse of the Bible. I think I probably could have. So every verse is worthy of attention. Every verse is worthy of examination. 
But today we're going to cover more than we have been. Part of that is just an attempt to cover the book. Part of that, though, is I don't think these passages are all that difficult to understand. But I'll tell you what. They're difficult to live. May God help us all. They're difficult to live. You have heard it said, you shall not make false oaths, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all. Not by heaven, for it's God's throne, the earth, for it's his footstool, Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, nor by your own head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Now, looking at this passage of Scripture, the subject of oaths also comes up again in Matthew 23, verses 16 through 22. And Jesus said, you fools, you say that you, if you swear by the altar, that's nothing. But if you swear by the gift on the altar, you're obligated. One of the reasons I mentioned that is because the Jews divided oaths into oaths that were binding and oaths that weren't. And oaths that avoided the name of God were not considered And Jesus is saying here in Matthew 5 that you cannot escape a reference to God's world when you're making an oath. If you swear by heaven, it's the throne of God. If you swear by the earth, it is the footstool of his feet. If you swear by Jerusalem, it is his city. It is the city of the great king. If you swear by your own head, that has nothing to do with the Lord. Yes, it does. You cannot make one hair white or black. God ultimately controls even those factors of our existence. And so the Jewish people divided oaths into oaths that were binding and oaths that weren't and oaths that avoided the name of God were not considered binding. And Jesus says you can't escape a reference to God in the oaths that you make. And he says let your statement be yes, yes, and no, no, and whatever more than that is evil. Now, what does this mean? Do you know the Old Testament actually told us in some cases you've got to make oaths? Numbers 5, for those of you in a numbers class, the woman who was accused by her husband of adultery, she takes an oath at the beginning of that process in Numbers 5, beginning with verse 19. You shall worship the Lord your God and swear by His name. Deuteronomy 6, in verse 13. You had oaths in the Old Testament. When you get to the writings of Paul, you find oaths there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, as an example, 
Paul says in this passage, But I call God as witness to my soul that to spare you I came no more to Corinth. The Corinthians were having trouble. Paul didn't go. Some people said this means Paul's dishonest. He can't trust his plans. Paul says, God is my witness. The reason I didn't come was to spare you. And in all of these passages on the board, you see Paul calls God as a witness in cases where people wouldn't have known what was true. So Paul is basically taking an oath. And Jesus is asked by the high priest, Caiaphas or Caiaphas, to make testimony under oath. I adjure you by the living God. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus answers. And God takes an oath. Because he could swear by none greater, he swore by himself. Surely multiply, and I will multiply you and your seed and your descendants. In Hebrews 3, verses 13 through 20, as it's talking about um, Abraham. In Hebrews 7, verse 21, the Lord has sworn you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And God made an oath to David in Psalm 89, verse 3. We could go on with this. But is the point that Jesus is stressing really taking an oath? Or is he stressing something else? Let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. I think one thing it tells us is our words be few. Sometimes the less said the better. And that is difficult for me and I'm sure for some of you who get uncomfortable with space where nothing's being said. And sometimes we fill it in with meaningless chatter. Let your yes be yes. Keep your words few. But more importantly, this is the message. More importantly, the message in this text is we are people whose words can be trusted to the extent that we never have to make a vow. To those who know us, to those who know our character, what we say can be trusted Psalm 15, verse 5, talked about the characteristics of the one who would dwell in Zion. And it says, he swears to his own hurt. He does not back off of it. I'm paraphrasing it. But he does something or makes a vow that is going to be difficult for him to fulfill. But he does it. He does it. He keeps his word. He does what he promises. When he says it, he means it. And I think this is what is being stressed with us. That we are people who are trustworthy 
That we are people whose words can be counted on and depended on. When you say you're going to do something, can people around you depend on that? When you say that these were the facts of the situation, can people around you be for certain that that's true? I think that's what Jesus is calling us to. Jesus is saying that we are people whose yes means yes and whose no means no. And we are people whose words can be considered reliable and trustworthy. Now like we said in the Beatitudes, I hope I'm talking about you. I hope this is your character and my character. Our next section. Jesus said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, that is the classic statement of Lex Talionis. That the punishment fits the crime. You knock out someone's tooth and your tooth was knocked out. And it's stated in Exodus 21... In Leviticus 24, in Deuteronomy 19, it is also present in some of the law codes of the ancient Near East. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Now, this was originally given to judges to tell them how to punish people who were guilty of crimes. And the goal of this legislation was that the punishment not exceed the crime. That if someone has committed a crime, that they be punished in proportion to the crime. There's nothing wrong with that instruction. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. What was wrong with it were some were using that as an excuse for personal revenge and retaliation. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Did you notice in verse 39, you may look at your translation. The New American Standard said an evil person. The word evil is all that's present in the Greek text. The word person is implied and it... It's difficult to tell at points whether it should be like the evil one at the end of verse 37 or of evil. But the point is, do not resist evil. Well, the same word resist is used for resist Satan and he will flee from you. James 4 verse 7. What does it mean, do not resist evil? Well, he goes on to illustrate what it means. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Most people then, like now, are right-handed. To slap someone on the right cheek 
for your right-hand person was to slap them with the back of the hand. Now some say this word inherently conveys that idea of a backhanded slap. And for some reason, and I'm not exactly sure why this was, but this was considered at least twice as insulting to a person to slap them with the back of the hand than with the front of the hand. Whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Is this literally telling us to stick our cheek out? The other one? If we're struck? Or is it telling us that resist not evil? Means that when someone insults us and delivers to us the most calculated insult. That we don't respond in kind. To my knowledge. I've never had this happen. Never had somebody come up, slap me with the back of their hand, or the front for that. But I'll tell you what's happened a few times in my life. Someone's come up to me and said something insulting. Now, that's not necessarily pleasant to endure, but of the two, I'll probably take the insult. When you've had that happen to you, and all of us who've lived a while have had that happen to us, what's your first response? Sometimes, before I've even had time to think about it, an insult is flying back at the other person. Is that what Jesus did? God help us. If someone wants to sue you and take your coat, let him have your cloak also. Now, you're going to find translations here are going to differ a lot. But I do think there is agreement, whatever your translation says, and the New American Standard has the word shirt and coat. Whatever your translation says, there is agreement as to what these garments are. The first garment is, the first garment that is described refers to a longer Outer garment, excuse me, a longer inner garment. While the second word that's used refers to a an outer garment. Now, this is what's really key, okay? This is a real important thing to help us understand what he is saying. In Exodus 22, the Bible says, 
in verse 26, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, you are to return it to him before the sun sets. For that is his only covering. It is his cloak for his body. What else shall he sleep in? And if it comes about that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. If you, if, if you ever take your neighbor's cloak as a plague. Now what happens, this is describing the poor people. The poor people who are giving you a pledge that they're going to pay their debt. Let's suppose he doesn't have anything else except this garment, this outer garment to sleep in. And he gives it to you as a pledge. Each night you take it back to him because it's all he's got. If he's poor and doesn't have anything else to give as a pledge, it's all he has. And you return it to him each night. It serves as a continual reminder of his debt. But that's practically all the point that it really serves. You are to give it to him every night. Here, he is saying if someone sues you and takes your inner garment, let him also have your coat. Let him also have this garment that he cannot take from you legally because it's your only covering. He is saying, be willing to sacrifice what is yours by right rather than take revenge. What did Paul tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6? 1 Corinthians 6, when they were going to court, with one another and suing one another before unbelievers? What does Paul say? Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defaulted? Better than going to law before unbelievers is to be wrong. If anyone wants to take away your shirt, let him have your coat also. And whoever compels you or forces you to go a mile, go with him too. The Roman army occupied this area in the time of Jesus. And the Romans could compel you to carry their luggage for a mile. The Roman soldier could ask you to do this. It may have been that a mile was the limit of what they would require you to go. And if they compel you to go one mile, you go two. By the way, this word compel or forces is used one more time in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's used to Simon Cyrene, who's forced to carry the cross of Christ in Matthew 27, verse 32. And give to him who asks of you. And do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. Maybe in context, this is a person who has done us wrong. How we treat them. 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. And in so doing, you heap coals of fire on his head. Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. Well, the words become even more convicting. I don't know if violence is the best title, but I was just trying to preserve the alliteration. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. Leviticus 19.18 And hate your enemy. That's not in Scripture. Now, some think that adequately summarizes the law of Moses. I I don't think so. If you see the donkey or ox of someone who hates you lying helpless under its load, you help him. Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5. We already quoted Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, uh, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. You shall love your neighbor. And hate your enemy. But I say to you. Love your enemies. To pray for those. Who persecute you. The world loves people. Who loves them. The world greets the person who greets them. The world is kind, and even the worst of humanity, here, the tax collectors and the Gentiles are used as illustrations that they would not have approved of. If you, if you love only those who love you, the tax collectors do that well. If you greet only those who greet you, and you carefully avoid all the rest. You're not doing anything the Gentiles don't do. They live on that level. They do good to those who do good to them. And do evil to those who do evil to them. Now there are a few people in the world who return evil for good. But most people live on that basis. That they do good to those who do good to them. They do evil to those who do evil to them. And he says, if you're only doing that, what are you doing more than others? He expects us, his his followers, to live at a higher standard. But so that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. We show whose sons we are by how we act. Jesus told the Jews who claimed Abraham as their father that you are of your father. The devil, who was a liar from the beginning. John 8, verse 39, John 8, verse 44, through that section. We show whose father we are by how we act. 
But so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Every day God causes the sun to rise. And every day somewhere in our world there is rain falling. And that blesses people who trust in God. And that blesses people who lift up their fists in defiance of him. And that is used as an illustration that we are to love. As he loved. We are his sons. And we're to be perfect as the Father in heaven is perfect. The Father is an example of these things, and the Son is an example of these things. As we stated before, but we did not say before, Jesus had his trial. This word for being slapped is used of him in his trial of the Jews. They slap him across the face. I believe it's Matthew 26, verse 67. He doesn't respond. He doesn't retaliate. When they crucify him and continue to insult him in the midst of his death... He prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And his very act of dying for them was doing good to people who hated him. All these values today that we've discussed would only be described as virtues because of Jesus. You're going to have a hard time. You're going to have a hard time seeing these kinds of conduct praised. Before the time of Christ. Or you're going to have a hard time seeing these values live in a world where people live in defiance of Him. The only reason these things have value, the only reason these things are viewed as virtues is because of the impact That Jesus and his influence has given to society. This standard to be perfect as God is perfect. It convicts us. Convicts me. And I hope it convicts you. But you know that's not all a bad thing. Because this sermon started with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who recognize their sense of dependence upon God and their need of His forgiveness. And if this sermon doesn't convict you, Then you need to offer instruction to the rest of us. And it also gives us a serious standard to which to shoot for. That we are seeking to live in the world as God acts toward man.
as Jesus acts with man. That's how we're seeking to live. These words, by and large, are not that difficult to understand. But they are difficult to live. But we set them before you because these are what he said. And we strive to be his people. And may God help us all in that process. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, our God, if you did wrong to those who did wrong to you. And if you loved only those who loved you. All of us would have been objects of your wrath long ago. We thank you that you loved and did good to those who done evil to you. Forgive us for times. That we have totally disregarded what you've said. Help us. Forgive us. And help us. To be your children. Who seek to walk in your way. And who seek to live. As is demonstrated in these passages. Have mercy upon us. And give us strength. In Jesus' name. Amen. Friend, if you see your need to be right with God, the preeminent illustration of one who loved his enemies and did good to those who did evil to him is Jesus. And God gave his son to die for you. And so those of us who have sinned and have fallen short. And those of us who have violated everything that he's talked about. Can have forgiveness and be right with him. That is a blessing beyond what any of us deserve. And if you want to become his disciple. We invite you to follow Jesus today, believing that He died for your sins, repenting of your sins, being baptized for remission of sins as we stand and as we sing.